We're going to get back to Mark's gospel today in the 13th chapter. Uh, we've been studying this uh, gospel of Mark, and we were pretty, pretty faithful in that for 12 chapters, and then Christmas came, took a little break, and uh, so we're going to get back in 13, and then we will take a break again next Sunday, but I'll tell you more about that later. Uh, tensions are rising in Jerusalem for Jesus and his followers. It's the week before the Passover and uh, the week of his death. Uh, great crowds of pilgrims are filling the city to visit the single greatest attraction in Jerusalem, which is the Temple Mount. Herod's Temple Mount was massive. It was double the size of Solomon's in the Old Testament, and it had been under construction and expansion, much like West San Antonio, for decades. And uh, for comparison, this church uh, property is about six acres or so. Uh, the Temple courtyard and the whole thing was about 35 to 40 acres. So that was a really big complex. It was the pride of Israel. It was the central hub of their faith and of their practice. Imagine one single location that represented the nation's capital, uh, its financial hub, its intelligence headquarters, its military headquarters, all branches of its government, its religious headquarters, and was also the top tourist destination. That was the temple to Israel. It was everything. And certainly if you have a working understanding of the Old Testament, you know the place that this held in people's hearts. It was their rallying cry. It was where they met with God and with the priest. It was where they praised God and sang and made sacrifices. It was their connection to the past. It was where they learned of their forefathers. It was all nostalgic and wrapped up in one thing. And in Mark 13, what we're going to study today is a prophecy made by Jesus, that prophesies the destruction of this very temple and a calamity upon Israel that surpasses that of even the Babylonian invasion. And in addition to that, it seems that Jesus is prophesying something beyond what occurred there at the temple, but even the end of our world today. In case you needed some encouragement today, we are going to talk about the end of the world in Mark 13, sometimes this is called the Olivet Discourse, uh, perhaps the longest single teaching topic that Jesus made. It's definitely one of the longest. It is a systematic walkthrough of the end of temple Judaism, as well as a look at the end of the world and his own return. I do think, however, that the intention of Jesus giving this lesson actually is encouragement in a strange way. And here's how. He knew that some of his 12 disciples would be alive to see Jerusalem fall in 70 AD, some 30 years later. And many of his initial followers would live to see the temple burned and destroyed, the great stones carried off by the Romans, the lampstands of gold and the table of the bread of presents paraded through the streets of Rome as tokens of war. He knew they would see that, and he wanted to prepare them systematically to shift their hopes away from the temple and to place those hopes in Jesus Christ. The message of Jesus and Peter and Paul was never hunker down and wait to be raptured away from all the troubles of life. Rather, it was this, if Christ is our great hope, then no loss, nor confusion, nor tribulation can shake us even in the darkest of days. Jesus' message was never 
that we would avoid suffering, but that we should meet it with him and that we should be supported by our hope in his return, whether it happens in our lifetimes or not. Today's message is entitled, Jesus' Encouragement for the Last Days. And whether we actually live in the last days or not, you know, the Bible kind of makes it seem like you're always living in the last days. But I mean, literally, if we are actually in, alive when Jesus will returns or not, the command is actually the same. Resist the temptation to despair when the world is crumbling around you and cling to the hope that Christ will make all things new. So before we look at Mark 13, let's pray together. Lord, I pray that as you intended, this message will be an encouragement as we look at a text that describes destruction, that Lord, we would not despair in that, but that we would see that you have prophesied and told us everything that would come to pass. You have been faithful and you will be with us during the suffering. And Lord, ultimately in the end, we believe that you will return for us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I would encourage you to go to Mark 13. First reading today will be the shortest. We've got a little quick paragraph, but this is a longer text than we normally take at one time. I always regret doing that, but here we are again. So, Mark 13, 1. As he, that is Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. We'll press pause there. As we look at Jesus' encouragements for the last days, we see number one, he encourages us to part with your hope in this world. Not to part with your hope, but to part for your hope in this world. If you want to be prepared to endure and to suffer and not to lose your mind when the last days come upon you, you have to have already, already in the past, parted with your hope in this world. Verse 1 shows us that Jesus and the 12, they're inside the temple. They're coming out when the, when the story begins. An unnamed disciple remarks at the beauty, at the grandeur of this temple complex. Now, for someone in small-town Galilee, it probably wasn't every day that you got to go see the big temple. It's like if you live in upstate New York, you know about the, uh, New York City. You've been there a few times, but every time you go there, it's still pretty massive, and you're kind of taken aback by it and amazed at the size of it. It's a lot like that. They're, they're amazed at what they're looking at. Jewish historian Josephus wrote that the largest stones in this complex, since we're talking about the stones, were 37 by 12 by 18 feet. That's a large single stone. 37 by 12 by 18. That's a stone bigger than this table up front. That's a big single stone. It makes sense that they would look at these things and be amazed. It was a great source of pride for them because architecture can symbolize the greatness of God, and it did. And then Jesus says, let me tell you something about these stones. It's all going down. Not one of these is going to be left on top of another. This place is going to get destroyed. And, and in the heart and mind of a Jewish person, it was their nightmare to hear that. This was, the, I mean, they read about this, and it was like the, the thing that they feared most ever happening again. 
This statement would be like if you, if you combined something of national significance, religious significance, and personal significance, wrapped it up, and watched it all burn before your very eyes. There would be a sense of something deep being ripped away from you. And that's what Jesus was purposefully doing. He prophesied of a true event that would come. Now, I will tell you, we don't have time to get into all the details, but I know some of you like to research after the fact. You can look up the Jewish-Roman wars and the assault on the temple in 70, 70 AD, and you can find when Rome came and Emperor Titus destroyed this temple, just like how Jesus said it would. It's one of the greatest prophecies in the Bible because it happened truly right after Jesus said it. Rome came, and you remember all through the the gospel of Jesus, there's this fear that Pilate is going through in his mind, right? We don't want to cause a riot. We don't want to cause an uproar. And as you're reading it, you're kind of like, come on, nothing ever happens because it doesn't happen in the Bible. But the riot did come and the great fear did come in 70 AD. It just didn't come in Pilate's day, but it came, the big one came in 70 AD. Rome displayed their full strength. They unleashed their full might on Jerusalem and utterly destroyed the temple in a culmination of the Jewish-Roman wars. And as we think about Jesus' disciples, they, they certainly had it tough during that first era of the early church. They would experience great persecution, and Jesus wanted them to prepare for this. How? By stripping away their greatest sense, their single greatest sense of worldly hope. Jesus was transferring and shifting their hope from the temple and their Jewish identity to the gathering of spirit-filled believers and their Christian identity. When their eyes would one day see the temple being desecrated and burned, it would not be the end of their faith because that's not where their faith was to begin with. We need that very message today. Christian, the most important things in our lives will one day be gone. And the only thing that will last eternally is your relationship with Jesus Christ. You might say, as a child, my parents and grandparents and siblings will always be around. Those of you that are older know, no, they won't. This church will always exist. You know, not one church that Paul planted is still around, and he's a really good church planter. The median age of a church in America is 73 years. That means half are older, half are younger. Churches don't last forever. The SBC will always be faithful and never go liberal. I hope. I hope. Maybe not. Public schools will always be safe and trustworthy for my children. Hmm. America will always be the world's superpower and a beacon of freedom. I hope. My 401k and retirement will be there when I need it. And my social security will never go bankrupt. Huh. At least I always have my health. At least I know my job is secure. We say these things, but we know what happens when we place all of our hope in worldly institutions. Ecclesiastes 3 says that for everything there is a season. For every time and every matter under heaven, there's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. And Jesus is telling us today 
If you want to survive what is coming in the last days, do not place your hope in the temporal things of this world. We can enjoy things, we should. We can build things and invest now and today, and we should. However, we cannot get to the point that if our version of the temple is destroyed before our very eyes, we despair and crumble because all of our hope is lost. That cannot be. That's number one. If you want to be prepared for the last days, don't place your highest hope in the things of this world. Now, number two, here's where we get into the reading, a lot of reading. Number two, prepare for suffering and confusion to abound. Sometimes it's not as bad when you know it's coming. Prepare for suffering and confusion. Look to Mark 13, 3, as the scene changes to a smaller group of disciples on the Mount of Olives. Verse 3, as he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus said to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and of rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and child will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So as we get into the meat of this chapter, I want to tell you why this is often considered one of the most difficult to interpret texts in the Bible. Some people believe that all of this text refers to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, all of it, that this was all fulfilled within the lifetime of the apostles. And some, like myself, believe that Jesus was likely doing what many Old Testament prophets did, which we call a double fulfillment meaning that in some parts, it did refer to 70 AD, but there was also something greater in the future that was being pictured by what happened in 70 AD at the end of our world. That leaves with the difficult question when interpreting, well, how do you know when it's, and when it's 70 AD and when it's the end of time? And, and the only answer that you can really give is that's the hard part. And the, in the other words, uh, you know, that's how they pay, why they pay me the big bucks, right? That's the hard part. That's why it gets difficult. But the good news is there's a lot of similarities. So if you're thinking, this is hard, I don't understand when it's, when it's what. Here's what you can know. There are so many similarities in what happened in the lead up to 70 AD and what will happen in the end of our time. When you study one, it's almost as if you study the other. So... They are true historical events, but they picture one another. Now, let me say something else to you about this section. I, I think people often miss the point of what Jesus said completely here. 
This is what I would put in a misinterpreted text column. And I'm not with a lot of people on this, so that may mean that I'm wrong, okay? So keep that in your mind. I think even most Bible editors in their, in their um, titling of the paragraph, you can look at your page. What does the title of that paragraph say? Mine says, Signs of the End of the Age. What is your, something like that for yours? The way I read the section, how we just read it, all right, is actually that these are not signs of the end of the age. Okay? Now, maybe you need to look again. Again, maybe I missed it all, but the heading in my mind should be false signs of the end of the age. So they are signs, but they are false signs. Jesus is with this small group of disciples on the mountain. He looks at them. He, they, they ask the question, when and what are the signs? That's the two questions they ask. When and what are the signs? And Jesus gives a list. Here comes a list. False messiahs are going to abound. Confusion. Increase in wars. And then look at the end of verse 7. What does it say there? But the end is not yet. So these things are not leading to the end. That's not it. Then he goes on. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. Then natural disasters, earthquakes, food shortages, famines. But then what does he say after verse 8? These are just the beginnings of birth pains. In other words, these are not the signs. But how often are we told they are the signs? They are not the signs. That's not it. And here's why it matters. Here's why that matters. Every time the world goes through a period of chaos, Christians are not to clench up and say, this is it, and hunker down and go into our bunker underground and wait for the sweet trumpet to blast and to Jesus to take us home. That's not how we're supposed to live. The message is, this is not the end. Don't crumble like your grandmama's cornbread in the rain. That's Jesus' message, church. Bad stuff is going to happen. But it doesn't mean the world is ending every time something bad happens. That's important. So just keep serving Jesus when these things happen. Keep serving through the suffering. You might have figured this out by, uh, by now about me. I'm not a pre-trib rapture guy. I don't think I've said that out loud, but I'm saying it. I'm not a dispensationalist. I don't think it's going to happen like the left behind books say. Still fun, light reading, but I don't think that's how it's going to happen. I don't think all the Christians on the earth are going to vanish out of thin air while all the lost people get left behind and then the real tribulation happens, which we, can't, uh, which we get to escape as Christians. I just don't. What I do believe, now hang on with me before you get the heresy forks out, okay? I do believe in a literal return of Christ. I'm just not convinced of a rapture and a second coming. Because see, if you have a rapture, you got to really call the next one the third coming, but they don't do that, okay? I just believe in a second coming of Christ. I believe things are going to get very bad. Now, I'm not a post-millennialist. That means I think things are going to get worse, not better. I believe things are going to get very bad and that Christians are going to endure suffering and tribulation just like we always have. And then just like in the Lord of the Rings... Just like when things are really bad and all hope is lost, the riders of Rohan appear over the edge of the hill, 
Just like when things are really bad and Captain America stands alone with his broken shield and walks toward the armies of Thanos, just when it can't possibly get any worse, boom, that's when the trumpet sounds and that's when Jesus returns and brings everybody with him who's died in Christ and raises everybody who's died in Christ and then he kills everybody with the sword of his mouth that needs to be killed and executes one single judgment throws Satan and hell and death into the lake of fire, reunites heaven and earth, recreates it all, and boom, we're off to the races, forever to reign with him. That's what I think is going to happen. Some might call that amillennialism. That's fine. When I see suffering in the last days on the pages of the Bible, I don't assume, oh, I won't be there for that. So I'm just going to assume Jesus is going to pull me right out of it, and then all the bad stuff is going to happen. That's a fine way to set yourself up to be ill-prepared for actual suffering, to think you're never going to have to go through it. You're going to see false Christs, and guess what? You do now. You do now. People rise up and claim to be gods and saviors. Dave told me about a guy who set up a colony in Oregon, and his own little city, and I don't even know what to call it, Rajneesh Persham or something like that, and thousands of people across the world found him. He was from India, and they found him in Oregon, and they set up a city with an airstrip and with stores, and they just, people find this guy. You know the, the stories of what happened in Waco. These things are all over. They happen all the time. People are going to fall for delusion and charades You're going to see an increase in wars and famines. It's hard to imagine things could get more than... If you lived at the right time, you you lived through World War I and World War II. Can you imagine that, living through that? And the Spanish flu somewhere in between, right? But that wasn't the end. You mean there's more? Sometimes people say... It's the worst now that it's ever been in history. And I'm just thinking, man, you need to read a book. I mean, it's, real, it's been really bad before. Verses 9 through 13 says, you're going to see an increase in persecution of Christians. You're going to see an increase in, in famines. You're going to see an increase in families that are split apart by Christ. There will be honor killings increasing, martyrs all over the world. This is going to happen, but guess what? It's been happening These things have been happening. But it doesn't mean, especially if you live in it, it doesn't mean to pack up and call it a day. Just like when the followers of Jesus saw their temple on fire, they saw the mount, the temple mount burning and Roman officers standing in the Holy of Holies. They saw it burning. When they saw the melted gold that used to be on the walls flowing like a river down the staircase and seeping into the cracks. And the reason why the stones weren't left on one another is because when it cooled, everybody went to try to pick the gold out of the rocks and they pulled those stones out. That wasn't the end. So when do things start to get serious? When is it the end? Well, it's amazing if you just keep reading in the Bible, sometimes you get your answer. Look at verse 14 with me, Matthew, or excuse me, Mark 13, 14. He says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, 
let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, to women who are pregnant for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Now, as soon as you mention that phrase, abomination of desolation, I feel like you've got to focus on that because that's what you're all thinking about right now anyway. I've watched a lot of Rudolph this uh, Christmas season, and we talked about the abominable snowman, but this is something very different, just so you know. Uh, you get a lot of different opinions and interpretations on what this is. Uh, I don't pretend to know exactly everything, and no one does, but um, I'm not going to give you conjecture. I'll give you what I, what I know, and when I think I don't know something, I'll tell you I don't really know for sure. What I do know is that Jesus used a term that was first coined in the book of Daniel, Daniel the prophet prophesied about one who would come and stop sacrifices and make an offering that would desecrate the temple. Many scholars believe, and I am inclined to believe as well, that Daniel accurately predicted the moment in 167 BC when Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes IV raided the temple and set up an altar to Zeus on the temple mount and sacrificed a pig on the altar. That historically happened. This was a catalyst for the historical Maccabean revolt, again, which really happened. Again, in 70 AD, a picture of this happened. When Emperor Titus of Rome led the attack, the temple was desecrated and burned with fire, and its items were paraded out, its holy items taken through the street, the menorah, the table of presents, mockingly carried away and walked through the street of Rome in a victory parade. This desecration seems to be partially what Jesus is prophesying. But it also seems to me that these historical events are types and foreshadowings of a future man of lawlessness spoken of by Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, which I'll read to you now. Paul wrote, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, here's the same message, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the Lord has already come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction." who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Again, these texts are difficult. They often raise more questions than they're answered. Who is this person? Well, it's not Nikolai Carpathia. That much is sure. Must someone stand in the literal temple? 
in present-day national Israel? Or would they be fulfilling this text to claim authority over the church? Our Presbyterian brothers have made their call. If you're a Westminster Confession Presbyterian, you know who this is. This is the Pope. Now, I don't personally agree with that, but that is a major view held by Presbyterians. What we do know is that there is a template. Daniel prophesied it. It came to pass in 167 BC. Jesus prophesied it. It came to pass in 70 AD. And it seems that there is one more final culminating abomination yet to come, which will surpass the previous two in a similar template. You might live to see what is described as the Antichrist, or an Antichrist, which we see all the time. You might, you might live to see it. In verse 23, Jesus says, be on guard, be on guard. He says, I've told you beforehand. So what's the message consistently in this passage? To me, it's don't be shocked. Don't be alarmed. Don't panic. Don't lose faith. Don't follow the Antichrist. Don't despair, but rather be ready and stand firm. That's the message. And that's Jesus' encouragement to you to prepare for suffering, to prepare for confusion, as if we are always living in the last days, because we are. False Christs are going to increase. You're going to see more false Christs. Confusion about what up and down and left and right and man and woman, it's all going to get worse. People don't know anything anymore, and a spirit of confusion is in our age today. And it will even seem as if the world at some time is going after an abomination who puts himself as an authority in the church to lead many astray. Many will follow. But Jesus reminds us to be on guard and to keep watch. So Jesus had encouraged us, part with our hope in this world, prepare for the suffering and confusion. And lastly, number three, you knew it was coming, put your hope in the coming Christ. This whole chapter is about shifting hope, transferring alliances from the temple to Christ. Switch your allegiances from the system to the person. We follow a person, his name is Jesus, and he promises to return. Read the conclusion of the narrative portion with me. Now it goes on, we had to cut it short just for time. It goes on, he talks about a fig tree, and that's an, a metaphor for this whole story. And then he says, no one knows the day or the hour, okay? I don't want you to think I'm hiding something from you. That's what's after what we finish today. But this is really the culmination of his teaching lesson. Matthew 13, 24 says this. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends 
of heaven. Here we have Jesus prophesying his own return. After the abomination, after the full weight of darkness has settled in over the earth, after what Jesus calls tribulation comes, the earth-shaking, show-stopping moment. How will we know if there's false messiahs all over the place, and if this says that some of them are going to have abilities to do things that shock you, how are we going to know when the real thing comes? Here's the answer. Only one will come on the clouds with great power and glory, with the full might of all of God's mighty angels behind him. No antichrist, no false messiah, no false teachers can summon the host of God to display full divine wrath and glory at the same time. Only Jesus. And when he comes, he will gather his elect All those who are called by his name and who are bought by his blood, those who have died in Christ will come with him and they will be rejoined with their bodies. Those who are alive at the time will be caught up to meet him in the air and then Christ will judge this world. And when sin and evil and Satan are finally vanquished and removed, he will make all things new and we shall reign with him forevermore. This is our glorious hope. Though the days will grow dark, the light of the world has promised a return. When this is true in your heart, when it's your hope, then no loss nor confusion nor tribulation can shake us. Paul said it best in Romans eight thirty seven. No, in all these we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing, not the destruction of the temple, not the destruction of a nation, not financial ruin or supply chain collapse, not the emergence of an actual antichrist. Resist the temptation to despair when you see the world is crumbling. Cling to Christ and the hope that he is indeed returning to make all things even you knew. Pray with me.